the Future Proof Podcast from Newstalk. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Hashtag believe in science. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. If you like the programme, please do rate, subscribe, share it with your friends. We really appreciate uh, every tiny action. If you'd like to contact us on the programme, you can email us at science.newstalk.com. You can also find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. Coming up on this week's programme, we'll be speaking to Irish-born researcher in Oxford, Teresa Lamb. She's a professor over there who's worked on the AstraZeneca vaccine. We'll be hearing about that moment where she realised her work could save the lives of thousands. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me via the magic of the internet is Dr Shane Bergen from UCD and from NUI Galway, Dr Jessamine Fairfield. You're both very welcome. Our first story. Okay, one last time. These are small, but the ones out there are far away. (laughs) Small, far away. (laughs) I forget it. Shane has to do with the furthest we've ever seen. Yeah, just as we get James Webb telescope into position, Hubble shows us that it's it's still able to do amazing work. Hubble, uh, the, te- uh, the, the space telescope that's been orbiting Earth since the 90s, has now seen the furthest away it's ever seen, basically. It's seen a star that within the first billion years of the universe's existence. And that that's a long time ago. Um, and this beats a previous record. I barely remember it. Yeah, exactly. I know, Jonathan, the show was only starting, etc. Uh, it beats <laughs> a record from 2018, uh, where we saw a, a star that was uh, um, within the first four billion years of the universe. And it's very important that we are able to see these early stars because it can tell us about how stars were first created, about how elements were created within them, and can tell us a little bit about that early universe. Um, the light from this new star has taken an incredible 12.9 billion years to reach us here on Earth. So we're not just seeing in terms of distance, we're also seeing in terms of time. Um, and it's- So remind us, Shane, um, the beginning of the universe estimated 13 and a bit billion is still our best estimation. Yeah, absolutely. So 13, I think 13.8 billion years, if I remember correctly. And uh, so we we... Uh, we're hoping to see a little further back in the in the coming decade, but 12.9 billion years is is the best we can do at the moment. And um, we're we're seeing a very very early star. Um, and as I said, it's taken almost 13 billion years to reach us. And you, you would think, um, okay, so that like maybe we could just look a little bit further to the left or to the right and see something uh, even further back in time. But something special happened here for us to see this star. And it relied on something called gravitational lensing. So the light from this huge star was focused through a another galaxy that happened to be in the way between it and us. And that 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 extra galaxy um, allowed the light to, to curve because of gravitational uh, forces and it uh, magnified it, it focused it so that we're in the perfect yeah. spot to see this very, very far away star. That is so cool. So you're saying like gravity created sort of a, a magnifying glass for us to be able to see this star from so long ago. Yeah, it's it's a lens. The star is called Arendelle, uh, which means morning star in Old English. I think it has a nice Lord of the Rings feel to it. No, it does. It sounds exactly like something from Lord of the Rings. Um, it, it really, really cool. And of course, 
this, you know, our, our solar system is what, seven billion years old or something like that. So this is, you know, really when things were, I mean, we, we hadn't got our stuff together by, by this point. Yeah, COVID hadn't even started. <laughs> it feels like seven billion years ago. Uh, Jessamine, our second story has to do with type two diabetes. Yeah, this is a really massive new study that's just come out of the University of Cambridge, uh, basically finding that type 2 diabetes has a much higher risk carried with it of about 57 other health conditions. So to me, what's impressive about this study is they actually collected details from 3 million patients who had enrolled either in UK Biobank or agreed to share medical details um, from their GP's office. These are patients over 30, um, and they basically were looking for correlations between onset of type 2 diabetes, especially before the age of 30, and other kinds of conditions. They found that type 2 diabetes had a high correlation, uh, about 5.2 times the risk of kidney disease, 4.4 times the risk of liver cancer, 3.2 times the risk of macular degeneration, 2.6 times the risk of neurological issues, 1.9 times the risk of digestive issues, and actually there's a bunch more issues. I won't read them all off, um, but you know, type 2 diabetes... Uh, as, as you probably know, there's over 500 million cases around the world, and type 2 actually accounts for about 90% of the diabetes cases where insulin resistance causes, you know, these poor correlations between uh, eating blood sugar and, like, blood glucose levels. Um, so it just really underscores how important it is to find effective treatments for these conditions and even to try to prevent it, right? Um, so type 2 diabetes, you know, there's genetic factors, which you obviously can't do much about <laughs> once they're in place. Um, yeah. But you can look at things like physical activity, which reduces the risk of, of onset of type 2 diabetes, as well as diets that are high in fiber or leafy greens, limiting your sugary drinks, all the sort of not that much fun things that are nonetheless less fun than having kidney disease and type 2 diabetes. So it really just shows, you know, this is a huge uh, illness affecting so many people worldwide. And it's really helpful to see such a large study um, with such rigorous results about it. Yeah, and, and I suppose one thing that we can say about type 2 diabetes is that it is now uh, an epidemic globally. Um, of course, numbers are rising rapidly. It's a, something we've been trying to tackle for the last 10 years. Interesting to hear that obesity researchers, obesity being, of course, a, a major um, factor, are saying that, you know, the reason that we get obese is actually due to how we experience hunger um, and, and satiety and that there's a, a big mix of things the, the old thinking of, you know, energy in, energy out is not how we should be thinking about obesity, even though it seems very simple. New research seems to be pointing to the fact that there are different factors, hormones, genes and uh, how we feel full that really affect whether or not someone's likely to go on to, to, to be obesity. And I think that's a really important point to be made to get rid of the stigma of obesity, that it is not um, as simple as energy in, energy out. The, the, these um, additional risk factors, of course, would be worrying to hear that, the, that the type 2 diabetes is linked to so many other multiples um, when it comes to other diseases. Yeah, absolutely. I think the calories in, calories out thing is very appealing if you're a simple physicist like me, um, but metabolism is actually really complicated. And so it's nice to hear, I suppose, that just focusing on physical activity and diet um, is a very effective way to try to prevent or treat this disease if you've already got it. Yeah. Um, our third story, Shane, has to do with streetlights. It does. Um, is it better to leave the lights on or the lights off at night if you want to prevent people from breaking into your car? And this is work from the Journal of Quantitative Criminology, a journal I hadn't heard of before, but one that I'm going to read periodically. And <laughs> uh, um, so work was done in the UK and they looked at crime data uh, from 2004 through to uh, 2013. And they looked at how 
the amount of crime at night um, depended on whether the lights were left on all night, whether they were dimmed or whether they were turned off between midnight and the the early hours. And they found that when the lights are turned off, you you get a 50% reduction in theft. And um, yeah, and so this is the kind of thing about feeling safer versus actually being safer, right? So uh, now, of course, it doesn't talk about other types of crime that might happen on the street at those times. Um, And I'd certainly feel safer going along with the lights on if I were walking home. But they're saying in terms of car theft, that perhaps if you can't see into the car so easily, um, or if you can't see aspects of the car, you may be less likely to to try and steal uh, from it. And I suppose theft is predominantly opportunistic. So if you can't see the laptop on the passenger seat or find a way to get the, uh, the, the, the wheels off or something, then, you know, you might be less likely to, to do the crime. Unfortunately, what you'd they- think that these guys might have an iPhone handy, though, like, you know, <laughs> just turn on the torch. But um, what I like about this study, Shane, is the fact that, um, you know, we often think, oh, well, you know, that's obvious. We make assumptions about um, uh, things that we think we know because they just make perfect sense. And what this study shows us is that we need to measure because sometimes we make assumptions that are untrue. I would have assumed that a car basked in the streetlight would be much less likely to be subjected to theft. But yeah, that's not we true. We do need to measure, but measurement isn't always the, like this type of measurement, as Jess has said in her previous story, doesn't always really help because it's not telling you the full story. And uh, what I was about to say was what happens is the crime just moves to the next street where the lights are on. So it doesn't prevent crime. It just displaces crime. Uh, so, yeah, like it's very, very interesting that you can look at these numbers and see trends. I'm not entirely sure I'd be uh, looking for my local councillors to switch the lights off on the streets at night, though. OK, very good. Uh, Jessamine, our final story. I love this. It has to do with lions. That's right. And it's about how lions are affected by oxytocin. So if you remember, you know, oxytocin is a peptide hormone that's produced in the hypothalamus. Um, in humans, we know about it originally because it speeds childbirth. Right. It actually comes from the word for swift childbirth, uh, which is something I learned researching this story. It's important to lactation and infant bonding, but it actually impacts a lot of social behaviors as well. So it's produced by things like physical touch, sexual activity, um, and it helps bond people, you know, both within family units and just in social groups. But you're probably wondering, what about in lions? What does it do in lions? So <laughs> I was I was wondering that. That's the, that was my yeah. first thing that went into my head. Obvious follow up question. So researchers <laughs> researchers from the University of Minnesota have gone and, and found out for us. Um, they found that in lions, uh, administration of oxytocin through a nasal spray makes lions more tolerant of intruders. They don't roar at roars from unknown lions as quickly. Uh, they sit closer to other lions when playing with a toy. Um, So, you know, lions also affected by oxytocin. Now there's no change in lion behavior when food is present. So hungry lions are still hungry lions. But to me, what's interesting about this story is actually that they had to nasally administer oxytocin to lions, right? So like giving a human a nasal spray to be like, hey, would you spray this and then do like a a test around like trust or empathy or generosity? That's fine. I'd be willing to sign up to be a researcher in those conditions. But luring over a lion to spray something up its nose and then threaten and it specifically and a specifically unfriendly lion right because yeah. they need to see that change of behavior and it's exactly. not a sedated lion so no. you're basically trying to squeeze something into an unfriendly lion's nose mm-hmm. how many phd yeah. students were harmed in this study gosh i hope none 
Um, and yeah, like this was. Well, there were there were a lot fewer names on the final paper submission <laughs> than than expected. Oh God! Well, one of the one of the like applications of this work as well is like around urban sprawl and lion habitats being threatened. It was like, oh well, if we can make lions more friendly, then perhaps they'll be more okay with urban sprawl. What this necessitates like a, a cadre of just lion nose sprayers roaming the edges of cities, <laughs> which is not a job that I would volunteer to do, frankly. Um, but it is interesting research, so it's good to know. But but oxytocin we know has uh, um, effects on uh, the hu- the human brain as well why, why do we not use it as a a morning spray to to, to basically get people to get on better like, like is that a crazy idea well it i mean it is available as a as a thing that you can buy in some places but i think again you know it has to go past the blood brain barrier to get into the brain um and in general we don't give each other a lot of you know brain altering drugs just to get on better um unless you're at a festival or something like that but i think uh i think oxytocin i'm gonna get some oxytocin time. i'm gonna get some oxytocin for the next show and we'll just see if it changes my demeanor regarding my excellent guests well fingers crossed yeah absolutely fingers crossed <laughs> you say that like I, I, I'm always targeting you, Shane, which I, I suppose is actually probably true. Uh, Dr. Shane Berger from UCD, Dr. Jasmine Fairfield from NUI Galway. Thanks very much. Now, possibly the greatest um, human invention in this century, for sure, uh, is the invention of the COVID-19 vaccine. And it is a surprising thing to find oneself in the middle of a global pandemic where your work can literally save the lives of thousands. But that is the position that our next guest found herself in, a co-designer of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, Professor Teresa Lam is from Kildare, but working in Oxford, and she joins us now. Um, Welcome to the programme, Teresa. It, it, It must feel a little bizarre to hear that as an intro, but um, before we get into the science and everything, do you ever pause to think about your contribution to the science and how important it was to the safety of of literally millions? Is is that a weird thing to think about? I don't tend to think about it. Um, I do find it a little bit odd because we were all just doing our jobs. Um, we were all hoping that um, what we did might help, but um, we weren't sure. And that's why we started the clinical trials. So no, I don't sit down on a Friday night with a glass of wine and congratulate myself. I didn't think you did. No Irish person ever, ever would, would they? We, we, we don't tend to do that very often. So let's just go back to the start of the pandemic. Um, obviously, working in this area, you know the potential of a, a virus like COVID-19. And, and probably early on, you thought this, this, this can't be good. At, at what point did you think we need to do something about this and we need to do it fast? So this journey started for myself and a very small group in late 2019, early 2020, where we uh, had heard of a pneumonia of unknown origin coming from China. Um, My brother at the time was living in Shanghai. I'm Irish, so I I tend to know my brother's business um, and was waiting for the phone call from my mum to say, is Anthony going to be okay? Do we need to worry? So um, any of these types of reports do pique my interest Um, And at that stage, it really wasn't clear what this virus was. And typically from China, you'd see influenza, so flu coming out, avian influenza. Um, And I remember in early January uh, having a conversation with Sarah Gilbert about should we go and should we go fast? 
And at that stage, when we didn't know how transmissible this virus was, it was a little bit of an academic exercise. But it soon became apparent when we learned how transmissible this virus was and how deadly um, that this was no longer an academic exercise and we really needed to pull all the stops and go as fast as we could. I remember the, again, the, the surreality of of that time and watching this on TV, even as a science broadcaster, I felt like this was like something from a film when Leo Varadkar came out and addressed the nation. Um, there was real concern in our household. Did you have that level of concern? What sort of um, emotional reaction did you have to the pandemic? Because, of course, you know the limitations of a virus and you know, uh, you know how they typically spread. Were you as as personally worried about the pandemic as, as, as the rest of us? We're all human at nature. So yes, I was worried. Um, and typically with these types of pathogens, respiratory pathogens, they tend to really impact older adults and children. Um, and I've got two young children. So I was worried for my parents and for my children. So yes, it did impact me. And I think it impacted us all in different ways, but that didn't stop us. We still had a job to do and we still had to turn up and do it. And if anything, it probably made us work a little bit harder, a little bit faster. Tell me a little bit about um, this uh, technique uh, that AstraZeneca uses. It's not the mRNA vaccine, which um, many are familiar with. This is a a viral vector vaccine. Um, This is something that the technology has been around and AstraZeneca had been using this in other products and so had, a, I suppose, a good head start to develop something as, as, as simply as you can, because it is a tricky thing in, in a way to explain. What, what exactly is the mechanism? How do we trick uh, our immune system into attacking uh, coronavirus? It's a really good question. And actually, just to mention, um, AstraZeneca hadn't used these platform technologies oh, right. before. So if anything, it was a heavier lift for them and they were brave enough to come on board and do it. Um, other companies had like Janssen, etc. So if you will, it's it's a bit like it's a virus, a, a virus that will typically cause a common cold um, when they're from humans. But we used a virus that humans won't have seen before, a chimpanzee derived adenoviruses. And we change it ever so slightly What we do is we put the recipe for a very small part of SARS-CoV-2 into this virus, almost like a Trojan horse. So it carries this very small recipe for the spike protein of of SARS-CoV-2. And what happens when you get vaccinated with this Trojan horse or or this uh, um, adenovirus, you get expression of a small part of SARS-CoV-2 the spike protein. Your body recognizes that it's foreign, it's alien, it's unknown, and it mounts a really strong immune response against it. So it mounts antibodies and T-cells. And in effect, those antibodies and T-cells lay dormant until you see the real virus. And when you see the real virus, they're primed, they're ready to go. So it's a bit like a training mechanism for immune systems so that if you get infected, you've got something ready to protect you. How do we know that, though? I've watched a lot of these videos, right? And they're beautiful images of the coronavirus that that I'm sure everybody's familiar with. Um, And then we see, uh, you know, the viral vector sort of capsule that delivers a little string of of information and that goes into the cell and then the ribosomes do their work. But 
like we can't can we see that physically in action with the microscopes is that is that how we we know that that works or how do you how do you measure what's going on when we're talking about things that are so small yeah it's a good question so um we and others have been working on this tech for about 20 years or so um we've used them adenoviruses to make vaccines against lots of other pathogens and we'd also used this particular adenovirus, a chimp-derived adenovirus, to make a vaccine against a different coronavirus, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. So we'd made that vaccine and we had immunized individuals. And then what we looked for, the kind of readout you're talking about, was we tried to measure and see in the blood of these volunteers if there was T-cells and antibodies specific to the MERS coronavirus. And that's a way to check and see if the vaccines are inducing an immune response. Right. So you can see the output, but that but that mechanism is 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 sort of understood and inferred, but it's not something we observe or, or measure in the actual in the lab. Is that right? You can measure it in the lab. It's not the type of work that I do. I tend right. to do the clinical immunology. So looking at the immune response in our volunteers. And how, again, watching you know films on on these sort of um, vaccines, it all looks so very clean, but presumably it's not, right? The the the, the cell, the the detritus that flies around a cell, how things stick together. It's a chaotic environment. How do we ensure that the the sort of things that we're delivering using this viral vector uh, don't get overproduced and cause problems. How do you do that sort of work? Because obviously, you know, you only want a certain amount of the spike protein to be um, be generated and you don't want lots of things going on in the cell that are uncontrolled. Yeah, another good question. So what we tend to do is make these vaccines um, to very strict protocols or SOP, so standard operating uh, procedures. Um, and as part of those protocols, uh, there is a long list of how to clean them up, essentially, and what constituents are allowed in and what constituents are not allowed in. Um, and it's it's not so it's a difficult science to get right. And that's why at the very beginning, when AstraZeneca was scaling out or scaling up the vaccine manufacturers, we had to hit all of those points to make sure the vaccine was pure, that it was going in at the right concentration of viral particles or viruses, and all the debris and the detritus that you're talking about was not there. And um, so there's very strict criteria um, before you can release a vaccine that will go into somebody's arm. When the vaccine was out in the wild and we knew about it, uh, we were reading constantly, it's 10 years to make medicine it will take us 10 years to get a vaccine and then suddenly there was talk of of vaccines um that were near completion and ready for clinical trials at what point did you think this is going to work i think when i heard about the efficacy readout of the pfizer vaccine that was a big deal for me and for all of us because you're absolutely right you can't make a vaccine against a lot of infectious diseases. And the fact that you could make a vaccine against SARS-CoV-2, and it was efficacious, and in fact, it was far um, higher hitting than what the WHO had stipulated, that really made us hopeful that our vaccine would also be effective and efficacious. Uh, and in November, it was around the end of November, 
Meryn Voicy, the chief statistician on the trial, uh, crunched all the numbers. They got verified by AZ. And then she rang me on the Sunday to bring me through the results. So that that was a big deal. What was that? I mean, I know you're a scientist and it's sometimes hard to connect with with your emotions. But um, uh, can you please uh, tell me what was that like to to hear that you had co-designed something that worked and could be delivered very quickly to people to save us from this pandemic? So even as a non-scientist, I occasionally find it hard to connect with my emotions. Uh, But I definitely connected that Sunday morning. So if you remember back to um, the efficacy readouts, we didn't have one number. We had three different numbers. And um, Marin is great at really explaining really complicated math and stats very simply. So she'd made this PowerPoint presentation to bring me through it and to bring other people through it. And I may have snapped and just said, just tell me if it's worked. And she did. And I did. It was every emotion that you probably would expect. Relief, I think, was the most. Happiness. um, A bit tearful. And then I got confused because she was telling me three numbers. And I was like, why are you making this complicated? Just give me the one number. Um, So it took me a little while to kind of switch my brain back on and figure out what she was saying to me. So um, the rest, as they say, is is history. Um, AstraZeneca was approved quite quickly after the Pfizer vaccine in the UK um, was the primary vaccine for many UK citizens and uh, was one of the reasons why the UK got ahead of COVID-19 so quickly um, in, in some respects. As someone who has developed the vaccine and presumed or at least hoped that that at least was that, I mean, how do you feel now looking at the, the next strain in Ireland, we're looking at 23,000 cases a day. Um, like, how do you pick yourself up and keep going when you look at the fact that this virus has really found uh, ways of just persisting? So I would like to circle back to something you did say, um, just to make clear that everybody on the team was making this vaccine for low and middle income countries and for equitable access all around the world. Whether that happened or not was somewhat out of our control, but we certainly pushed as hard as we could to make a vaccine that could get to low and middle income countries. Yes, we were definitely hoping that 2021 would be a little less busy. And this virus, as viruses do, they mutate. We knew that could happen. Um, I think it's encouraging that there has been a disconnect between the number of deaths and the number of cases. Yeah. But there is waning immunity and we do need to really keep on top of that. And we do need to keep the surveillance up to see where this virus mutates to. So, yeah, I'd, I'd like a break, but it's it's ongoing. Um, uh, you touched on on something there and I, I don't know how much you can say about it as a, as a, a scientist working on, on, on the vaccine, but one of the things that has been, I suppose, disappointing from an international standpoint is the fact that this vaccine is not, um, or any vaccine has not made it in sufficient numbers um, to to other countries for various reasons. But one of the things that this pandemic has shown is the inequality of health care and access to medicines across the world. Um, How do you feel about the fact that you you, you developed a vaccine with the intentions of making it patent-free and yet it still isn't finding its way 
into um, the countries where it's needed the most or into the patients it needed the most for, for, for whatever reason? So we made a vaccine and it was very clear uh, that we made a vaccine for access to low and middle income countries and AZ were fully on board and they agreed to supply this vaccine in perpetuity at no, co- at no profit for low and middle income countries. Uh, I think it's disappointing the way that uh, countries have acted in their own self-interest because until we're all protected, nobody's really going to be protected. I think there has been a lot of misinformation about vaccines and that has not helped vaccine uptake in certain populations or cohorts of populations. And that has led to um, hesitancy. I think we need to do better and we need to um, look to our governments to encourage them to do better. Um, Let's look to the future now. So the AstraZeneca vaccine has sort of I, I suppose it's how would you describe it in in a in a way that is is accurate? Would you say it's it's not being recommended as the booster vaccine now because of the the efficacy levels? What is the what's the future for AstraZeneca? So uh, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, two thirds of the supply have gone to low and lower middle income countries. We're still supplying an awful lot of the world and helping protect people that are most vulnerable. So we're incredibly proud of what this vaccine has done and what it continues to achieve. Absolutely. But um, there are, I have seen um, comments from from organizations in, in, in some of those countries where they say, you know, we're getting the AstraZeneca. We want the Pfizer. Um, and I, I was wondering, how do you how do you feel about that? Um, is it upsetting to hear or do you think countries should work with the vaccines they've gotten? So to my mind, the best vaccine is the one that's in your arm that's keeping you safe. Mm. So you, a, each government and each country will have hard decisions to make about what they think is most appropriate for their populations. Uh, and you need to follow the guidance in your country and keep yourself and your family safe. What are you working on now? And, and is there a universal COVID vaccine on a, on a theoretical whiteboard somewhere in AstraZeneca? So at the moment, I'm continuing to work on um, looking at the maintenance of immune responses to see how long lived they are, um, how potent they are against different variants of concern. Um, I've gone back to some of the other outbreak pathogens that were neglected um, when we were all looking at SARS-CoV-2, so things like Ebola. And one you probably haven't heard of, Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever. It doesn't really roll off, off the tongue. Um, and we're also looking at the impact of a further booster studies. So there's still an awful lot of work ongoing with SARS-CoV-2. Some researchers and manufacturers are looking at making a pan-coronavirus vaccine. What we've seen so far is that when you give booster doses, especially in populations where you've got waning immunity, so likely older adults as well, that actually the original vaccine can get your immunity so high that you are protected against hospitalization and death against uh, variants of concern. So while a pan-coronavirus vaccine is something that I think we should look into, at the moment, I'm not sure that we absolutely need it. Um. Finally, uh, to anyone listening to this program thinking about a career in science, um, I, I wouldn't mind if you wouldn't mind reflecting on your own career and the things that you have achieved 
how does that make you feel how does that um drive you forward and what might you say to young people who are considering trying to walk in your footsteps well i wouldn't encourage walking in my footsteps they <laughs> need to find their own path um i would suggest what i've tended to do is follow the things that i liked doing and follow the subjects that i loved uh, i always ask questions there's lots of people who do that I suppose the one piece of advice that if I could give myself or a younger me is don't be afraid to make mistakes. You're only going to learn through um, making those mistakes and picking yourself up uh, and looking at the problem a different way. Make sure you've got uh, good friends around you and you listen to a diversity of opinions because there's no one person who's right all of the time. Well, Professor Teslam, Congratulations on such an extraordinary achievement. I'm sure the the Irish public are extremely proud of um, of what you've done and also your contribution to global health. Big thank you to the UCD Biological Society uh, who were presenting the George Sigerson Award for Inspiring Aspiring Scientists. Uh, they gave the award to Professor Teresa Lam, OBE, uh, this week. Tess, thank you very much for joining us on the programme. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And thank you very much to UCD for the award. It meant a lot. Amazing achievement when you think about it. You look back on your life uh, to be able to say that you were one of the people responsible for saving humanity in a way. Like that's, I don't think it's an exaggeration. Of course, um, Tess is extremely humble as, as most researchers are, but like that's, that's a thing. Uh, Producer Aidan McKelvey joins me to uh, to go through some of your comments from last week. Like the people who created this vaccine, Aidan, they saved the world, right? That, is that too much? Do you think? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, well, them and a few other different va- vaccine creators. Well, yeah, but like, I, I mean, what I mean is, yeah. as a group, the people who came up with the vaccines, they saved the world. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. And like, I, do you ever find, I always find that as probably as a journalist and you're want for like, whatever, a great line or a great Drama. answer. Uh, yeah, I kind of find, I kind of find it, I almost find it disappointing when people are like, I, I value in my personal life humility above most things. But in like an interview, you're like, you want them to kind of go, yeah, I'm the shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like when somebody interviews a footballer at the end of the match and he scored a hat-trick and he's like, oh, I was all about the team and it was a team effort. And you're like, fuck off, just, just go on. Just say like, <laughs> I'm brilliant. It's yeah. great. Suck it. <laughs> or, or like, I mean, I mean, I suppose from Tess, I, and she could see what I was trying to do, I think, because it, it was a video call. She could see I was trying to eke out some, you know, some emotion, which is, you know, manipulative of me as an interviewer, I'll admit. But, um, but it is, you know, it is often the people who do the biggest and greatest things are also the most humble. And I kind of feel like it really seen as how I am not in any way humble and have also achieved very little. It makes me feel really bad to speak to people who are like Tess. God, imagine if you'd saved a lot of lives, how like intolerable you would be. <laughs> oh, oh, I would be. T- I would be. Yeah, that's me. I would be. Oh, I'd like to sit at that table, please. No, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm that the, guy. I'm. The, you know who I am. <laughs> I'd be. You know who I aming, all over the place. Yeah. Thankfully, we don't live in that world. <laughs> Not no, yet. No. But, but actually, who knows? Maybe it's. Maybe when you get there, that's the moment of enlightenment. That's like reaching the 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 zenith of uh, of higher 
living, right? The, no, like I, I, don't, the, I don't. I don't. I don't think that's going to Yeah, that's not going to fix you, Jonathan. I think these people they go into something that's so specific and so under the limelight uh, that they have that humility to begin with. I think. Yeah. I'm afraid. Yeah. Sorry, you can't. Saving a lot of some people. Some people have. You know, some people good, are born with. It. Some people are born with humility, and some have humility thrust upon them. I think I'm somewhere off that scale. I think I'm either side of the scale. I'm not on that scale. Um, so, so let's go. How are you anyway? All right. I'm fanta- I'm fantastic. I'm very good. Uh, I'm. It's you know, March has been great. There's been. Lots of visitors, uh, obviously coming off the back of uh, the interview we just did. That didn't happen for a long time. So I was meeting the, the in-laws were over from Germany uh, last week. And then the week were before, I remember, hands? I'm, in, I'm in great form. Were you shaking Shake, uh, a bit of A bit of hugging, to be honest. I don't know if I, if I you hold your breath or... when you lean in? No. <laughs> no. Come on, no, everybody's doing that. Nobody's saying they're doing it, but everybody's doing it. Yeah, I, well, should like point out, uh, I should point out, a bit, I've just been watching the entire final season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, and it is in, it is infectious, The uh, his attitude. I think that's partially what's going <laughs> His on cynicism, here. yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hug and then breathe. Uh, so you just don't want to be caught breathing out as you as you leave the hug. Um, yeah, that could be a bit weird. Yeah, yeah, a bit awkward. Uh, well, that's good. It's a, it's a, your, your, your life is coming back together. Well, it's great. COVID's over. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and we finally turned this corner. Um, right, let's just leave that. We'll just leave that there. Uh, so, coming to some of your comments last week, we spoke about the potential end of astronauts with uh, two authors, Martin Rees. The uh, he's always introduced as the astronomer royal, but I guess he's not our royal astronomer. He's British royal astronomer. Why do they do it the other way around? Why do they call him the astronomer royal, kind of like a cheeseburger in France? Why do they do that? I, I don't know actually yeah, the royal astronomer would make a lot more sense but they call maybe, the, uh, the the astronomer royal yeah maybe maybe with if cheese. you were to call him the, the, the if you were to call him the royal astronomer or the royal with cheese that would suggest that he himself is royal ah no. maybe I don't I, I think it still kind of suggests that I was I was just picking that out of nowhere anyway <laughs> anyway he um he and Donald Goldsmith um uh, science writer together they put together this book in which they argued that we should not be putting human astronauts in space anymore that it's a stupid idea and that we should leave it to robots and I kind of agreed which made the dif- the interview kind of difficult because I knew all of my arguments weren't very strong and so <laughs> I was kind of putting up these arguments that other people put up and they were very easily knocked down and I, 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 I kind of felt like it was a bit of a redundant exercise in a way. Did it come through in the interview? No, I think it can. Like, I think it's weird because the main argument, I think, for wanting to put astronauts in space or for astronauts to do some of the space work as opposed to just robots is like there's a sort of an intangible, like, lack of a connection with a robot. And, like, there's no kind of, you don't have the same emotional feeling as, like, a, a robot won't give you that, that thing if you ever watch the moon landing. It's just like, this is incredible. I'm watching this incredible thing. And somebody stood there on that rock yeah. and was on a different world. And I know like that depends on the robot. I mean, like if it was Johnny Five uh, from Short Circuit. Yeah. I think yeah. it'd be pretty like I'd, I'd be punching this guy. I think if Johnny Five came out and did some Three Stooges impressions. Yeah, that would no, don't get me wrong. It'd still be cool, but it wouldn't be as cool. That movie, think. that film, by the way, while unfortunately a little bit racist, surprisingly and completely unnecessarily 
other than the racism, stands up the test of time. If you can just put aside the racism, it's otherwise wow. a fine movie. It's there's blacking up and everything. It's it's other than that bit, it's a fine movie. But it, it that sort of sours it for me. I think. Yes, it probably it probably should sound for you. All right. I don't know if you could fix that in post, but I I kind of feel like you can. It's a, sort of the, the he's a sidekick. He's kind of the my the, the sort of side character, and it's a sort of a apuna hasapina penalam sort of scenario. Yeah, I do remember it. Yeah. It is uh, very very weird, a yeah, very weird that, choice. Isn't that a fine movie? Um, so yeah, so uh, he he said that um, Martin Rees and uh, Donald Goldman said. Uh, you know, we shouldn't be sending humans into space. Um, someone says, why do we have a space program at all? We have massive problems here on Earth. Why waste our mental and physical resources on outer space, not to mention the carbon footprint? Well, that was one of my points. And I was actually really surprised to hear how little fuel uh, a rocket uses. Like, uh, what did he say? A single flight from New York to L.A. is the amount of fuel they use to push a rocket into space. I found that incredible. Yeah, well, I suppose it's a much shorter difference distance, like up. Well, yeah, but you're still out. going. You're going up. But yeah, I suppose. I mean, a plane would be much bigger. It would have a lot more cargo. You're just going up, and once you get up, you don't need to. You're already. You don't need. There's no air, I suppose, to get in your way and slow you down. So yeah, okay. I guess it does make sense. But it's just yeah. when you. I, I, have you ever been in the shadow of a of a real rocket? No, I'm jealous of you. You have been, haven't you? I have, and and, and I I was actually right stood beside one as uh, you know as they were um, assembling it for liftoff in French Guiana, and these things are huge, man. Like the, those those first stages, like the amount of fuel and the size of them, it just made me think that this is a huge amount of um, of burning, but apparently not. Yeah, I mean, I've I've actually I have been in Cape Kennedy as a tourist as a as a. 12 year old i think so i did walk along the side of the saturn rockets the apollo rockets oh yeah and they they are incredibly big like it's it's kind of hard to imagine them stood upright because they're they're on their sides and you can walk along them Um, but yeah it's a hell of a lot of stuff to have to get into space yeah so i I mean the argument of a carbon footprint i don't think is is particularly it's not a big deal um but why do we have a space program at all we've kind of discussed this on the program before it's like well we could just focus all of our resources on one thing but there are seven billion people on the planet and it's kind of impractical to have everyone working just on cancer i think um, yeah and so you know we why why not do both i guess is the is the is the thing and you speak to anyone from european space agency or nasa and they say we spend so little money doing really cool stuff leave the freaking space program alone and it you know in comparison to so many other things that that uh you know that are big or as big it's a fraction it's a fraction of money it's a it's a a, a, a tip of a five cent into a tin cup that's what it yeah, is yeah and it's a, it's a false dichotomy as well that like that idea that oh we could do space or we could do like cancer research as, as you're kind of alluding to there like well you know we could cut our military costs and we could cut all sorts of other things like and I don't understand. I, I get kind of annoyed by these arguments. Like, I don't understand how people don't see it. Like, when we live in a universe where we don't essentially know what's going on, that they don't see that it's valuable to go and try and find out. Yeah. Like, Agreed. I think that to me, that's really straightforward. Like, um, another says humans are effing up this planet. The universe should be spared the contamination of hubristic apes called human beings. So, there's two ways to look at that. One, 
absolutely right. We have really, really messed up and we have not shown that we are um, likely to change in that respect. We, we continue to, to screw up our own planet. And the idea that this uh, should now filter out and spread um, like rotten apples in a barrel to the rest of the planets in our solar system and potentially in generations to come beyond... Um, I agree with sort of uh, in the general principle that maybe humans should just stick to ruining our own planet and, and leave it alone. At the same time, if you um, on a clear night stand and look up uh, and see the stars of the heavens above us, you realize that Earth is just one planet amongst a gazillion is a rough estimate. And so whatever we do and however far we go in the in the slice of time that we've existed in the 13 billion years um, of the universe and the pinpoint of geographical area we are ever likely to get to in the entire expanse of the universe that surrounds us. I mean, it's so incredibly insignificant that to get sort of moralistically righteous about it seems rather pointless. Yeah, I think as well, a lot of people go that misanthropic route not to not to accuse our listener of this but they go that misanthropic route because they're i guess frustrated about humanity and the, they want the to be seen to be like going on yeah yeah but like, there's lots of great there's lots of great human people doing great things out there as well and there's no need to necessarily believe that uh you know we can't change or get better or learn lessons and so on and so forth. I know you're going to disagree with me now, aren't you? No, you're being ridiculously optimistic about the human race. We well, are, we had a guy on, we we had a guy on about climate change who said, uh, I, I'm afraid I can't remember his name, but he was a guest, and he said, uh, it doesn't help anyone to frame it as, aren't we all terrible? He suggested, like, we should remember that it's an accident. Nobody was like, oh, let's uh, create climate change. That'll be a great idea. They were burning fossil fuels, and then they realized, oh, this is a bad idea. Yeah, and but then, we're but trying the, to change when that. we realized it was a bad idea, we still continue to do that. That's the, uh, that, I guess, is the, is the big problem. But, you know, such is life. Why do we always end up talking about, like, you know, the futility of life at the end of this podcast? Like, no one wants to end uh, an enjoyable, uh, you know, science and entertainment program in this fashion. And yet we still spiral towards this death rattle. I mean, let's just end on a positive note. Humans are great. No, 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 no. That's, that's just bullshit. Don't whitewash it. Whitewash you it. had your moment there. <laughs> you had your chance. See, I, you know I was trying to Every demonstrate once in a that while, it was you who brought it this way. <laughs> you know, it, it, it was indeed. Every once in a while, we, we do something pretty good. And I think Tesla um, is, and, and, and colleagues like her uh, who work on, on relieving this cursed species of some of its um, pain, I think they should be um, cherished and they are the good that is in the world. Not there you go. Not Fantastic you segue. There you go. Yeah, that'll do it. All good right. job, Tesla. Nice, nice um, connecting with you again, Aiden. Yep, and you too. Ah, <laughs> oh, shit, we ruined it. We asked it. We, didn't really, we had it and we lost it. All right. Uh, that's it for this week's Future Proof. Uh, thank you to producer Aiden McKelvey, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt, Jojo Cardozo was on sound. Uh, we'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. Music.